Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist.
And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Fitzroy Hotel in London, an amazing hotel dating back to the turn of the last century. In fact, it was opened uh, in, uh, in 1900, built in actually 1898 by a very famous architect, Charles Fitzroy Dahl. We're here on Russell Square. And when you look at the workmanship of this hotel, even today, you couldn't build this hotel today in terms of the steel and ironwork, the marble, the high ceilings. Uh, what a very cool restoration that the, uh, the Kempton people did. And in a location that most people visiting London don't even know where it is. So uh, we thought it was a good idea to come from, from this hotel today with Ion Travel. You know, we've been monitoring all sorts of stats on this show every week about who's going where, why, who's not going where and why. Uh, we talked about, you know, the, the effect on Brexit or of Brexit on European travel, on travel to the U.S., uh, the failure perhaps of Thomas Cook. We've talked about uh, the power of the U.S. dollar overseas and how that made me make it a buyer's market for U.S. travelers. And, of course, uh, the perception of the world of the Trump administration's immigration policies and what that means in terms of inbound or outbound travel. Joining me now, uh, the travel industry manager at Euromonitor International with a report on exactly what those stats mean and what they are to begin with. Caroline Bremner, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Peter, for having me. You got it. Now, if I'm reading the trends correctly, and you could help me out, and let's go back two to three years, uh, when the Trump administration initially announced the so-called Muslim ban, we saw a dramatic drop in, in both sides' travel, people traveling out of the United States, people traveling in the United States. Then that got compounded by the confusion and angst over Brexit. Um, within Europe, I mean, things really dropped, um, which, of course, creates a buyer's market for travelers when you think about it. And then, of course, the power of the U.S. dollar, which has never been stronger in recent years against the British pound, the euro, and, of course, so many other foreign currencies, whether it's the Argentinian peso, the South African rand, et cetera, et cetera. What trends are you seeing? Well, at Euromont International, we have a travel forecast model that we've developed, and it updates every quarter. So we can tr keep track of all the disruptors and, and trends that are impact on, impacting on travel and tourism demand. And at the moment, uh, what we are seeing is a weakening, first of all, in the global economy, so with GDP slowing, and this is having a knock-on Im impact on tourism performance. So we're definitely seeing a slowdown in global growth uh, to around about 3% a year. That's significant. It is. Well, it's slower than it was. So initially it was up around sort of, if you think back two years ago, we had a stellar year for travel and tourism. It was up around 7%. That's a big drop then. Yeah. So we are seeing the impact of what's happening with uncertainty. So uncertainty regarding um, Brexit, for example, here in Europe and the UK. And that means that, uh, for example, Last year in the UK inbound side, they saw a fall of 5%, very much driven by the drop in... Within Europe? Uh, from fr inbound into the UK, wow. um, driven by sort of a decline in European source markets right. to the UK. So we've got uncertainty, um, putting people off traveling. And then we've also got the other side, uh, when you look at the States, you've got the 
the trade wars between the US and China. So that's also causing a bit of uncertainty and acting as a drag on the global economy. Well, we're already seeing a, a drop in Chinese tourism inbound to the United States. Yes, so the, 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 there, are, there is a knock-on effect. And um, with our travel forecast model, we also predict scenarios. So if the Trump trade policies become even more adverse, potentially this trade war with China, if it completely escalates, could see um, a drop of... Uh, or a reduction of 10% off uh, inbound into the U.S. That's really big. So, But it's also the knock-on effect uh, that you have with the sort of uh, the trade between the U.S. and Mexico with tougher immigration policies. So this is also, you know, um, squeezing tourism. And, of course, to add even more craziness to it, we have an election cycle. And historically... Uh, election cycles mean fewer people travel because they tend to stay closer to home. If you go back four years ago, no matter who's running, it's not a political thing. It's just cyclical. In 2016, fewer people traveled. 2012, fewer people traveled. Coming into 2020, those numbers are going to hold up. I think uh, I definitely agree that it's cyclical, but equally, you. Um, but what might be a boon for outbound is the strong dollar, which you mentioned. So we are still seeing sort of strong growth, for example, between U- U.S. and U.K. Well, why not? If you can get an us. airfare for three hundred and fifty bucks, why wouldn't you? Yes. Well, th- that's the thing. Um, the there is a lot of. Uh, the prices are quite low at the moment, a um, bit of price pressure happening. But as you mentioned earlier, with the demise of Thomas Cook, we will see prices, particularly in the package holiday market, rise as um, you know uh, capacity uh, shrinks a little bit and other operators take up the slack. We're talking to Caroline Bremner from Euromonitor. Caroline, when you take a look, forgetting all the cycles, right? There's one thing that can't be ignored, and that is this year 1.4 billion people are going to cross a border. I mean, that's staggering enough. And if you look to 2030, it's going to be 2.3 billion. So this is what we're seeing. This perpetual can't wait to go through that airport. <laughs> perpetual yeah. rise in and tourism growth, and I think uh, what I think what you're uh, where you're going with this is well, how can we sustain this? Um, we have a very uh, high-profile climate activist now with Greta Thunberg. And it's very I hadn't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting what she's doing in terms of mobilizing young people to say, you have a voice, you know, you know Generation uh, Z and the younger generation, Generation Alpha, all being inspired by this climate activist. Although, interestingly enough, it may not change the number of people traveling or, how, or, or where they're going to go. It may change the way they travel. Absolutely. And I think this is the message that we're seeing from the travel industry is that we have to move to a more sustainable business development. So um, what we're seeing from the WTM trends report this year is the fact that, uh, you know, you've got the rise of flight shaming in Scandinavia. and then Well, I, I looked at the ad that KLM ran recently, which was amazing, where they actually promoted the idea of not flying their own airline. I think that's this is very forward-looking because basically what we're seeing is the rise of more tools, uh, carbon calculators, uh, digital platforms, all showing people um, and giving them transparency on their climate impact. And then from that, giving them alternatives. So absolutely, 
giving people choices so that they can travel responsibly. Well, let's be real here. I mean, we I've been to Europe so many times. You live here. If I had to go today from London to Paris, you couldn't pay me to fly. I would much rather take the train. What KLM was advertising out of Amsterdam is why would you want to fly to Paris? Why why don't you just take the train? I mean, from London alone, it's easier for me to go from here to Brussels, from here to Amsterdam, from here to Paris than it would ever be to fly. And and that, you know, at a certain point, you got to you got to do those numbers and figure out that it makes sense. I think it's also moving to this sort of multimodal transport system. So airlines, what we might see is airlines becoming, you know, mobility operators, just like we saw the car rental players transform, um, moving into car sharing, different types of uh, vehicles and uh, transport. Uh, but equally, I live in Scotland and I travel up and down to London. I didn't notice London. the accent, sorry. <laughs> I travel up and down to London and it's actually cheaper for me to fly. So the commercial... Uh, case is still not there. You know, we need to ensure that rail is accessible well, and cheaper. Well, you need high-speed rail to Scotland. We we would like that, but that that's not even part of HS2. I know, but it would be great if you did. Yeah, it would. Or as they say in Scotland, it would be great. It would be great. <laughs> I had to say that. I'm sorry. So let's quickly talk about future travel demand. We know about, you know, 2030 or 2023, but you see, regardless of economics, the demand staying strong? It will stay um, strong, um, but what we do need to do is to shift to more of a value uh, model so that we are looking and monitoring the sort of what of the inbound receipts stays in the destination. We have to put more focus on average spend per day and we have to you know, move a little bit back from just looking for volume and the numbers. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Pleased to have join us the Chief Executive Officer of Intercontinental Hotels, Keith Barr. Well, great to be here. Thanks, Peter. Uh, you know, I can't keep track anymore. Uh, in in the major hotel chains, uh, we have Marriott opening up one ho- one new hotel about every 16 hours. Hilton's right behind them. You've had some major acquisitions, including Kimpton, by the way. Yes. Are we seeing? Um, it's everybody's buying somebody else, and I, I, I imagine myself sitting in a boardroom right now of another player. Maybe it's Wyndham or Hyatt. Going, do we want to buy or do we want to be bought? I mean, is this trend going to continue? Yeah, it's an amazing time in the industry. When you think about the five largest hotel companies in the world today, have about twenty-five percent of the world's hotel rooms, but sixty percent of the pipeline, and that's come about from launching new brands and through acquiring brands as well too. And what you're seeing is smaller hotel companies being acquired by the larger hotel companies because we have the benefit benefit of scale, the investment in technology. And, and you had the reservation system. It's the reservation system. It's the distribution system. It's the ability to take great brands like Kimpton, for example, leading boutique hotel brand in the United States, taking it international. So we're here, of course, now in London, but we're also going to be in Paris next year. We've got Tokyo signed. We're working in Shanghai. So we're taking great brands and then spanning them up around the world. I remember when Reagan was president, 
The White House press corps always stayed at the Sheridan in Santa Barbara. And the towel said Sheridan, the soap said Sheridan, the rest system said Sheridan. Not only was it not owned by Sheridan, it wasn't even managed by Sheridan. It was owned by the Pritzker family and managed by the Peabody Corporation. I'm like, so when is a Sheridan not a Sheridan? It gets a little crazy when you're trying to figure out who owns what and who manages what. Yeah, I mean, we have such a wide variety of brands, right? We range from now Six Senses Resorts, you know. Very nice acquisition. A very nice acquisition we did this past year. And uh, it's been a great addition to the portfolio. But then we have Holiday and Holiday Express. So we, I like to say, I think about my brands as as a ladder. We want to make sure you have all the rungs in the ladder filled so that your guests, whether they want to stay in a Crown Plaza or Holiday Inn or an Intercontinental or Six Senses, we've got all the right brands for the right occasions. And we talk about total number of hotel rooms thanks to Holiday Inn your way up there. Yeah, we have 850,000, hotel rooms open right now, another quarter million in development, so it's 5,700 hotels. And uh, like you said, we're opening up basically a hotel a day and signing two a day. If you want to know about the power of a brand, talk about Holiday Inn in Asia, because I would go to a Holiday Inn in Asia, and they had marble everywhere, and they had circular restaurants, and they, I'm like, it's a Holiday Inn. But they loved the idea of Holiday Inn so much that the owners put in much more money than most Holiday Inn owners would ever put in anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, the Holiday Inn brand is the best-known hotel brand in the world. And so uh, we were just talking last week with some friends about China, when I used to live in, in China. And the Holiday Inn brand has been there for 35 years now. Right. And um, just a powerhouse brand. They have incredible hotels uh, located all across the country and across Asia. And they do operate at a slightly higher standard in Asia. But what's interesting, you are seeing them as those markets mature, that the, um, the, the rationalization of the park is beginning to happen as well. Although when you take a look at your development in Asia or all the other brand brand developments from the other companies, people forget this is not for the American market necessarily. This is for the internal Chinese market just traveling within the region. Absolutely. I was talking to someone the other day and they're like, well, you're building hotels, you know, for foreign travelers in in China, right? I said, no. We're a 97% domestic business. We have 450 hotels in China open, another 400-plus in development right now, and it's for the Chinese. And you're seeing that happen all across Asia. There really are domestic markets there. And if you look at their air network, which used to be their rail network, it's getting crazier. It's incredible. Both the the air travel and the rail travel in China, extraordinary. You're going to have, I think, by 2028, like 45,000 kilometers of high-speed rail, which is like the U.S. interstate highway system. And then, of course, the new airports that are opening up, the new one that just opened up in Beijing, extraordinary. It's You know, they just added 83 gates in Shanghai at their airport. Most airports in the world don't even have 83 gates. They just added 83. I know. It's really hard for people who haven't traveled throughout Asia to understand the scale of the infrastructure and the airports. I mean, they're stunning, whether you're in KL, whether you're in Shanghai or Beijing or in the Middle East in Dubai. Well, how about Incheon? Oh, my God. I know. What an airport. They're incredible. I know. And the thing is, they keep getting bigger. You know, Dwight Eisenhower, you mentioned the interstate highway system. Dwight Eisenhower once said, America didn't build the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system built America. And that's what they're doing there. Without question. I mean, the Holiday Inn brand would not be the brand it is today without the interstate highway system. Because it basically enabled people to be connected from state to state. And they hol- could pull off the road and stay, stay at a Holiday Inn. At a Holiday Inn. Inn. And so we're now seeing that happen in China with high-speed rail. You know, we're opening up Holiday Inn Express is all on the high-speed rail network across China. So you've brought back the Railroad Hotel. We have been back the Railroad Hotel in, in, in a modern interpretation of I mean, of if you it. take a look at the old Canadian Pacific Railroad, those old CP hotels, they're now Fairmonts, but they used to be owned by Canadian. They were called Canadian Pacific Hotels. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And now you're doing it on the rail. It makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Wow. And you're getting good support for that. 
Yeah, no, we have a great um, business in throughout Asia Pacific, and that's what's really exciting to see. We, we we were talking before the show about what's happening in Japan now. I mean, just the growth of tourism in Japan, which had been fairly stagnant for a number of years, huge, being you know powered on by new hotel development and great events. You know, we were talking about Holiday Inn brands. Many years ago, I did a book, which you're familiar with. Everybody that I know, when I was in college, you go to somebody's dresser drawer, and what was sitting in that drawer? A Holiday Inn towel, the distinctive green and white towel. So we did a book where we asked everybody who'd ever stolen a Holiday Inn towel to send the towel back, but tell us what they did with that towel. How did they use that towel? It was wild. Oh, it's amazing stories that came out of that. And it really just speaks to the history, the heritage, the the emotional connection of that of the brand, Holiday Inn. You know, I still remember the first time I stayed in a Holiday Inn was the late 70s going to Disney World in I, Florida. Really? You know, it was in one of those things. Of, I can still remember the pool and the restaurant, and that was, you know, such a big deal for us. And um, the towels. Wait a minute. Let me guess. Chicken fingers? Oh, of course, chicken fingers. Okay, I'm just double-checking. Yeah, yeah, okay. it had to be. But, you know, you think about, you know, everyone stole the towels over the years, and <laughs> the stories were just great, right? Okay, you can tell me now. Nobody's listening. Did you steal a towel? I, I never actually stole a towel. I have to say that I never so did. So one was presented to you? Yes, yes, but I do have quite a few holiday <laughs> towels. And I have lots of – the most interesting holiday and gift that was ever given to me was by someone whose dad traveled holiday inns for decades, and he had been given a pair of gold holiday inn cufflinks in the 1960s. Wow. And I still have them in my office. It's a great piece of memorabilia. Amazing. You should bring the towels back. Oh yeah, we you know we we've, we've talked about it. And should we bring it back for a short time? People love retro. They love retro. But now we're talking about the Holiday Inn brand. You have Six Senses, of course, Intercontinental, Indigo still running around. Hotel Indigo. It's uh, going to double in the num in the size in the next five years. So an incredible hotel brand. Uh, we've opened up again everywhere, all over the U.S. into Europe and into Asia. It's a wonderful boutique hotel, neighborhood stories, and I think we have about a hundred hotels being developed right now around the world. Now, if you take a look at the total number of brands out there for, the, for each chain, I've lost count. I think, I think Marriott Starwood is somewhere around 31 or 32. And I was at a conference not too long ago, in, in an industry conference, uh, everybody in the travel industry, and I said, can anybody here name all 32 brands at Marriott and Starwood? And there were 500 people in the room, one hand went up. I said, and sir, you would work for Marriott. I said, great, go ahead, name them. So he did. And everybody applauded. I said, but I'm not done yet. Can you now define them? Mm. And isn't that a continuing challenge in the business now? You might be getting to the point of diminishing returns where if you can't define them, you got a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think customers expect more from the brands today than ever before. But also, they have to mean something. They can't just be kind of a sign over the door and a logo. And when we've been very focused on making sure that each one of the price points and, and experiential levels that we provide, the brands mean something. And so we've got 16 brands, uh, again, ranging from mainstream all the and way And where to were you five years ago? Uh, we were we were probably eleven brands then. That's a big jump. For yeah, you. it was a big jump. We were yeah we were behind our competitors honestly in terms of having the brands at the top end. So now of course we have Six Senses as you noted, and we've launched another mainstream brands like Avid Hotels in the U.S. and a few more coming out. Um, so we're excited about that. But really, is having brands that mean something to a customer is critically important. It has to be a great experience, both from the product and from the service, and um, really mean something around the world. Well, the two words that come to mind when you say that is emotional connection, right? If I'm not dumping anything on Sheridan, or I could do the same thing for a Hyatt, or, or even for Wyndham, if I was in a room of 50 people and I told them they were staying at the Sheridan in, in Cleveland tomorrow, not everybody's going to be excited. 
In fact, they're probably going there because it's either company business policy or because that hotel is connected at the hip to a convention center where they have to go. So isn't that's a continuing challenge for every hotel brand to create that emotional connection. Otherwise, people just don't want to go. You have to build an emotional connection. I think there's a couple of ways that you can do it. First from, again, it's the loyalty program is a critical thing for us in terms of how we connect our customers across all of our brands. Well, but let's talk about that for a second. Because yeah. I go back to the Barry Sternlich approach to the Starwood loyalty brand where he really changed it radically. Because your most frequent stayers were being denied the opportunity to redeem those points for a room because the hotel was, was blacked out, right? And he basically said, no, the minute the hotel is above 92% occupancy, we're going to buy those rooms from the owners so that we can actually make the program work. And I think everybody else kind of followed suit. You did the same. Yeah, we no blackout dates. And again, it's critical. I think it's how do people redeem their points for hotel stays, but also how can they redeem them for experiences now, going back to that and building that emotional connection. So we just partnered with USTA for the U.S. Open. And so we had our top customers coming down to have meals in the players' um, dining room. Uh, attending the U.S. Open. So doing interesting things like that to let people connect with the hotel brands beyond just the stay. Because it connects with them in the long term. In the long term, absolutely. There is a time, and you remember this, especially being in Asia, where there was a, an amenities war going on at hotels to see which one can have the most designer soaps in, the most designer shampoos. And I will tell you, one of my favorite brands was Aqua de Parma. Mm. And if I walked into a hotel bathroom and those distinctive orange, I was like, I'm home. I love this, right? Uh, we're not doing that anymore, are we? No, I mean, definitely the winds are blowing a different direction, you know. And I often say that customers and colleagues now expect a lot more of us and to drive change. And so, you know, it started off simply with straws, right? So we reckon- Single plastic use. Got to get rid of that. And then, of course, we were the first- And you did. We did. They're going. They're going out, and we'll be the first to announce that by uh, within about 18 months' time, we'll have all small single-use bath amenities eliminated from all of our hotel rooms around the world. No, I'm much, I have to tell you, I have to admit this. When I built my house, I was such a freak for little bottles of shampoo that I designed my bathroom in my house, the master bathroom, to have shelves to house 500 of them from every hotel <laughs> in the world, right? And of course, the, the, the products would basically decompose, and you couldn't after all. But it, it was a nice design feature. I sort of miss that, I, well, but I understand why you're doing Well, they're going to be collector's items soon, so you better go out there and get them <laughs> while you still can. But, um, but isn't there, for me, from a design, I understand why you're doing it, obviously, but from a design point of view as, as well as a just a, a physical use point of view, can you get to the point where you can put the dispensers in the bathroom so that it doesn't look like a high school gym? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because you're going to go with super high-quality bath amenities with um, secured uh, shelving and lockable components, too, so it's both safe, secure, and good for the environment. And I was amazed, Peter, when I made the announcement, I got emails from customers all over the world saying thank you. They were saying, this is a fantastic thing. And the one that was the most touching was a woman from Indiana sent me a note saying, I'm the mother of two daughters. And I want to say for them, thank you for what you're doing for the environment. Yeah, because they're leading the way. Yeah, They're absolutely. telling the parents what to do. Yeah. And we, uh, trust me, my two daughters tell me what to do. You know, I can't drive. <laughs> the other day I was driving, and of course I went to put the air conditioning on because it was a hot day at the end of summer. Yeah, that didn't last like, long. No, they were like, roll the window down, Dad. Wow. They were, they were eco-shaming you. They are eco-shaming, Dad. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we got single-use plastic straws done, right? Cocktail, plastic cocktail stirrers done. Single-use bottles of soap and shampoo and conditioner and body lotion done. What's next? I think you have to look. Water bottles. 
Yeah, well, we've actually, we, so in our corporate offices, we have um, banned all plastic water bottles now. So we've given all of our colleagues around the world um, reusable water bottles. We've put in dispensers now. So we just completed that last month. But it has to happen in hotels. Uh, we've done that in Six Senses, of course, years are the ago. Owners, are the owners going to get behind that? Yeah, they are. You know, what amazed me when we learned this when we bought Six Senses was the payback for moving away from single-use plastic bottles to going to um, using machines dispensing it was like 18 to 24 months. And so there's a commercial reason to do it as well as an environmental you get to recoup. reason. You do get to recoup. But I think you have to look at across the entirety of the journey. I challenged my team the other day. I said, I walk into a hotel room today, and there's things in that room that have been there for 10 years in terms of design. I said, do we still need to do it this way? You know, and it's things about, and it's paper, and it's plastic. Okay, I have something for you. Ready? I'd love Here to it hear is. it. What's the first thing I do when I walk into most hotel rooms? You clear everything off the desk. I, bingo, done. Take everything that's paper, any folded tents. I don't even look at it. It goes. I know, I know. And that's why I pointed that out to the team. I'm saying, you know, we've done it this way as an industry for decades, and it just needs to go away. Right, so that's the first thing. Ready for number two? The card on the bed, which is, invariably is plastic that wants you to help save the environment by not washing the towel. If you're going to put the card on the bed, why is it plastic? Well, it shouldn't be plastic. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm I, not and talking I, about you, but I know, the hotel, I know what yeah. you mean exactly, yeah. Peter. And I, and I think that's what I mean by looking at the entirety of the journey. I'm looking at the room. So, like, we just launched a new hotel brand called Voco internationally. It's in the upscale segment. Um, and all the duvets are filled with recycled material now. And we're trying to think through if everything, how we build hotels, how we operate hotels, how we furnish hotels, how can we make this much more of a circular economy and using more recycled things to have less impact on the environment? Now, if you'd only get the guests to be recyclable materials, you, you, you've covered. I know. We would be. I know. Put your CEO hat away for a second. Put your hotel guest hat on. When you walk into a hotel room, other than what we just discussed, what's the one thing that really just pisses you off and you go, what is wrong with this? I think there's two things that fresh me as a guest when I'm staying in a hotel, not one of ours. Um, oh, I'll be the judge of that. I know, I know, I know. Um, first, lighting. You know, just Absolutely. not having the right lighting in the bathroom or in the workspaces in the room. It's like it's such a simple thing to get right. No hotel room interior designer should be paid for their work until they've been forced to spend at least two nights in the room they designed because don't trap me with mood lighting. It puts me in a bad mood. Absolutely. And I think the point you bring up there is this. When we were designing one of our newest hotel brands, um, I made sure that when we built the room out, we people spent the night in it. Because often you get these designers who design it. It looks great during the day, but how does it look at nighttime with the lights on? Does, does the, do the blackout drapes really black out? Uh, and so really thinking through all aspects and of that. And did we adjust the lighting? We did adjust the lighting. <laughs> Don't trap me with a 60-watt bulb. Give me a 300-watt bulb with a rheostat. I'll take, I'll take care of it. And then also bathrooms. I mean, bathrooms just need to be clean, fundamentally. You know, I want, and you want to be able to know that by looking at it, you know it's clean. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. You know, I always love stories like this about how people got to London and then, of course, how they stay in London. My next guest, welcome back to the show, by the way, 
Thank uh, you. She was attending Florida State University, had an internship program abroad, ended up at my old alma mater years ago at NBC, where she sort of fancied a cameraman. Next thing you know, they're married. He's no longer at NBC. He's a policeman, and she has started a blog for all the great Americans who are coming here called Sunny in London. Melanie Todd, how are you? I am fantastic. Thanks for having me back again. You know, what's, what's always interesting to me, especially at this time of the year, I have to it's the best time to come to London. It's the best time to come to Europe because it's great shopping. All the Christmas markets are up and running all throughout Europe, especially in Germany, uh, which I love. But there's something else I want to talk to you about because the vacations at this time of the year, if you use London as your hub, tend to be pretty cheap. Yes. Right? I mean, yes. you, all throughout Europe. I mean, and you factor in Brexit where people aren't traveling as much. And guess what happens? Availability. Yes. Yes, we've taken, in the past year since I've been on the show, we've um, traveled quite a bit uh, to the continent um, and, and found many um, places uh, that I recommend Americans visit if they have extra time when they visit London and definitely enjoying cheaper rates. Yes, actually we just did uh, a few weeks ago uh, what my husband calls a fly drive. Uh, so we flew into Bilbao, Spain, and we rented a car and drove to San Sebastian and um, uh, France, as well as uh, spent a few days in Rioja. And I think it was, in, in my opinion, one of the best trips that I've ever taken. Well, I'm going to give you one of my crazy tips. For years, I would tell people, don't just go online. And this is folks, my friends in the United States, don't just go online. Go to your local newsstand that carries foreign newspapers and get the Saturday editions of the British newspapers, right? The Times, the Telegraph, the Independent, and look at the travel ads because the inventory that they're advertising there, we never see in the States, ever. I'll, I'll give you the, the wildest example, and it's cruises. Most Americans will take a seven-day cruise, maybe a 10-day cruise, occasionally a two-week cruise, and then every once in a while, if they've got the money, they'll do like a round-the-world cruise, right? 180 days. Well, a round-the-world cruise, if you look at the, the cheapest fare category on any cruise line, and I'm not talking about a repositioning cruise where they've got to move the ship somewhere and they're just discounting the cabins. I'm talking about a real bona fide 180-day itinerary. You come up with it, and it's, it works out to be something like fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a person. I open up the British newspapers, and I see a 120-day itinerary with amazing destinations that they would never even offer to an American audience, which automatically gets my interest, and on a relatively new ship that most Americans have never heard of because it's not on one of the big lines. What do you think it works out to per day to book passage on that world on that round the world tour? I don't I don't know, but I'm excited to learn. See, didn't you like the tease? Here it is. Yes. 60 pounds per person per day. You cannot wake up in the middle of London for 60 pounds a day or in the middle of Chicago for 60 pounds a day. And 60 pounds a day is what, about $85 maybe? Mm -hmm. So think about that. And you're going around the world in your own cabin, three meals a day, seeing the world. And, and you'll not see that ad in the U.S., so all you need to do is book a cheap flight to London, right? Exactly. And exactly. Get, go down to Southampton and you're off. 
Exactly. In fact, uh, a few years ago, that's exactly how we uh, determined our summer trip. We saw uh, in the Telegraph, the Saturday Telegraph Travel Edition um, ads, adverts for uh, Malta, uh, which is not a popular destination for Americans. So and it should be. We've done the radio show from there. We love it. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and that's how we chose it. The, the prices were so much cheaper, and Malta was a completely new experience for me learning about that country. Um, and for those people who don't know Malta, everybody invaded there. Everybody hung out there. Even Napoleon was running around. Uh, and it's also a port for cruise ships. Yes. So it's, it's, it's a very va value-oriented destination. Yes, there's beautiful diving and history. There's ruins where you can visit and learn about possible aliens um, visiting the planet if, if you know that's something that you want to do. We, in fact, enjoyed a full-day tour with a former cast member from Game of Thrones because that's where oh, the help first... Oh, help me out. Oh, stop. <laughs> that's where the first season I stay, was filmed. I know, but you know, I stay away from any place where Game of Thrones was filmed. You've ruined, you've ruined it for me now. I won't, I won't go to Dubrovnik, Dubrovnik. for that reason. I mean, <laughs> yeah. come on. But I'll tell you where you could have gone, if you were there, to the island of Gozo. We did. We and did. you know what they sell there, which is the best ever? Olive oil. The olive oil in Gozo, is you bring, you bring it back as much as you can. It's that good. Oh, that's a great tip. We were in Bologna in February and brought um, quite a few people balsamic vinegar. See? Uh, because it's, you know, a regional... Um, something that's made in the region and it was just amazing but I did not know about the olive oil but we did uh, spend a day on a boat tour in Gozo and went to Blue Lagoon but I, I was astounded with how cheap it was yeah. in comparison as we talked about last year to the prices that you face on a daily basis in London where um, having breakfast for 60 pounds in somewhere like Chelsea would be a real real steal. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. By the way once you're in London you're not just stuck at Heathrow, Gatwick, Luton, Stansted, the, the secondary and tertiary airlines that fly out of there to places like Malta make it very worthwhile. Mm -hmm. As well as the city airport, yeah, um, which is a little bit easier to access. Um, By the way, the London city airport has the coolest flight going, especially if you're going home to the United States. It's British flights one and two, uh, and it's a specially equipped Airbus 318. You may think I'm making a mistake. Most people know about an Airbus 319, an Airbus 320, and a 321, et cetera. But there are a couple of them running around as Airbus 318, their short runway planes, because London City Airport has a short runway, and they fly it between JFK and London City Airport. On the way here, it's nonstop. On the way back, they can't hold as much fuel and get off the runway. So here's the cool part. It stops in Ireland, where you clear U.S. customs there. So while they're refueling the plane, you're done. And when you get back to JFK, you just get off the plane and go home. How cool is that? That's, that's very cool. It's much like uh, some of the places, destinations on Eurostar, where you clear customs before, before you enter the country. But that's, I mean, more that's and more amazing. countries should do that. And anytime there's pre-clearance, like there is in Ireland, go for it. It really, really works. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You know, London has quickly become, in my book, uh, the world's best hotel city because so many hotels have been opening, whether it's the Cadogan, uh, the Mandarin Oriental, Hyde Park, the Dixon, the Hoxton. Uh, the, I can't keep up with them. But there's one hotel that has been under the radar, really, uh, and has such a great history. And that's where we are right now, the Fitzroy, built in 1898. Um, and uh, by the architect Charles Fitzroy. I mean, that's that's really how this all started. But what's interesting is that this building has been around for over 100 and some odd years, and the building itself, the architecture, the workmanship, the stone, the ironwork, I mean, you couldn't get it today. Uh, it would it would probably cost more money to tear this hotel down than to rebuild it because it was built so strong. But it has a palatial design, and uh, and by the way, it's got great history. You know, stating starting from 1898. Joining me now, the head concierge from the from the Fitzroy or the Kempton Fitzroy, uh, Connor McDowell. How are you, sir? I'm very well, yourself? And you were here since before they opened, so not in 1898, but I'm yeah. talking about when they redid it in 2018. I mean, a lot of work went into redoing this hotel. A, a lot of work, yeah. I, I believe that the renovation should have only taken a year, but um, it took two years in total. They, they were stripping back walls, and they were finding all the original features from fireplaces to new staircases. So, yeah, it took... It took a, a long time to get it back up and running to. And the architect, his, his full name was Charles Fitzroy Gall. Yep. He also designed the dining rooms at the, in the Titanic. That's correct. Yes, he, he did. Yeah. And uh, another another feature of the of the Titanic linking to this hotel is we have a bronze statue on the second floor called Lucky George. So that's a sculpture, and there's two in the world. So Lucky George is here, and you've also got Unlucky George, which is on unfortunately the bottom of the ocean with the Titanic. <laughs> right. We got a 50-50 chance. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, but the other thing about this hotel is that, you know, during the Blitzkrieg in London and World War II, somehow this hotel didn't get bombed. It, it didn't get bombed. There, there was a little bit of damage. The, the hotel used to have a dome at the top of the, on the roof. That was, that was the only... That was only, it. That, that was it. But that was the, it. The remain, yeah, it just remained untouched. And when you, when you got this hotel, I mean, it was an old hotel. Let's call it what it was, yeah. right? Old design. You couldn't really change the, 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 uh, the architectural footprint of it. I mean, no. but you had to put a lot of work into it. That's right. Yeah, the hotel, it, it, was, it was extremely tired. When, when it first opened, it, it was one of the grandest hotels in London. But the, for the last 20, 30 years, it was extremely tired, and it just needed, needed money just pumped into it, really, to bring it back to its former, former glory. The hotel, they've done really well to just to restore all the original features. When you come in through the entrance, you'll see all the original marble work and mosaic flooring that's been there yeah. for 120 years. So. And look up, because the ceilings are not low. Exactly. What I also like about this hotel is location. I mean, you are walking distance from the British Museum. That's right, yep. And, and by the way, you might want to stay in the hotel for about three years if you want to see all of the British Museum. That's right, yeah, there's yeah, seven million uh, objects and artifacts there. Well, so. as the concierge here, tell me this. When somebody says to you, hey, Connor, I want to go see the British Museum, mm -hmm. that's, like, that's too general. Exactly. So what do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, the, the question we get there is guests who want to go to the British Museum and they ask us, how, lo how long should we spend in there? <laughs> but, it, I mean, it all depends on your interest. You could spend an hour in there if you're not really interested in, in, the, in, the, in the history of, of it all, but um, you could spend, you could go there for two months, honestly, and, and what, what's still your see What's your favorite place in the British Museum? It, it's got to be the, the ancient Egyptian, uh, yeah, the Tutankhamun and the tombs. By the way, that, that stands for all the stuff that British archaeologists stole from Egypt. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Let's, it's true. Come on. 
right? That's correct, yeah. I mean, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it truly is. And every once in a while, guess what? You got to give some of it back. True. That's what happens over the last 30 years. The Egyptians say, excuse me, could we have that back? And, right? <laughs> little by little. Yeah. Yeah, little by little. But in this neighborhood, Russell mm-hmm. Square, I mean, what's your biggest hidden gem here? Uh, the biggest hidden gem, I mean, there's, it's not just a British museum. It's got an abundance of muse- uh, museums here. So you've got the Charles Dickens Museum. They've got a, an, even a toy museum. They've got a, mu- a museum dedicated to zoology. So this whole area is, is just, it's just packed with history and, and artifacts. What is in the Charles Dickens Museum? Charles Dickens, it's just about his life. He's, he was a former resident here in Bloomsbury, so it's uh, his former residence and, yeah, just, uh, just little artifacts and, and scripts and, and everything else that, that he, he, he had. And, of course, if you're a taxidermist, you're going to love the zoology museum. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Right? That's everything stuffed. It is, yeah. <laughs> 330 odd rooms in this hotel? 334, yeah. Excuse me, 334, yeah. who's counting? <laughs> Is there one particular room that you go, okay, this is where so-and-so slept? This is where so-and-so... Since the the opening? Yeah. Um, Or even before the opening. I mean, you go back 120 years. That's right, yeah. I mean, there are are rumors that that, uh, Jack the Ripper stayed here, but that's, that's unfounded, so... It's just, just. By the way, Connor, Jack the Ripper stayed everywhere in London. That's true. Yeah. I just thought I'd mention <laughs> that, right? But he was, yeah, it was undercover. Well, you so can get away you, with you that never story. Know. Huh? Yeah. And who else? Uh, other so uh, close by, we had the Beatles. Just as they were, just as they were starting up in the '60s, they they were staying in the in the Bloomsbury area as well. So for me, that that was probably the, the the biggest celebrities before the renovation. And the bottom line is, you're are you filling these 334 rooms? Yeah, yeah, the hotel now. Ever since it's uh, become Kimpton Fitzroy, we've, we've got all the members from IHG, so it's a global brand now. And it's, it's just become more and more popular as our brand gets out there in, in the UK and Europe. So, yeah, we're full. And you're walking distance to Covent Garden? Yeah, 15 minutes. I mean, and that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I always love Covent Garden. It's, it, it's great, especially if you just want to walk. That's right, yeah. Now, London is a, for me, it's a walking town, mm-hmm. right? Where do you like to walk from the hotel? I, I like to walk in, into the Covent Garden area. I, I grew up in Covent Garden, so it's, it's always nice to, to go back home as such. But along the south bank of the river is probably the best place to walk. Everything is pedestrianized. You, you've got every, everything from borough market, street food market. You've also got the, the Tate Modern Art Gallery, Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, and just so much to do down there. It's a really good vibe. I think so. And restaurants within, not in the hotel, but within walking distance of the, of the hotel? Within walking distance, there, there's an amazing restaurant uh, on Lamb's Conduit Street, which is a street which is famous for its independent restaurants, bars, shops. There's no chains allowed on this particular street, which is... I love it here. already. And uh, yeah, Noble Rot, it's, it's a French, British, kind of modern European, uh, amazing wine selection as well. But it's... Uh, It's a good place to go on an intimate date or just catch up with friends. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
Joining me now, travel editor for The Independent right here in London, Simon Calder. Welcome, as Thank always, you. to the show. So many things to talk about. I mean, and we're not going to talk about Brexit, though. Okay? okay. We're not right. talking about Brexit. Thank you. But we are going to talk about a failure. And that was one of the uh, sad notes, especially if you're a historian, and that's Thomas Cook, one of the oldest venerable travel agencies in the world, some would argue the first really big one, uh, that literally, I mean, dissolved. It did. Um, actually, two months ago today, 23rd of September, I was in Manchester Airport in the northwest of England. That's the, where their airline was based. I kind of got the sense that uh, things were not going to go well. A rescue effort that had uh, been set up collapsed in the previous two days. And it became clear that, unfortunately, the aircraft would be coming in. They would be landing. The crew would be told that's it. And all the passengers who were turning up at 5 o'clock in the morning to fly off to the Mediterranean on holiday uh, would learn that they were going nowhere. Absolute tragedy, as you say, one of the greatest names in travel. How many passengers are actually stranded around the world? Well... Depends, I heard like 150,000. Yeah, it depends how you define stranded. Um, I would actually say a better term would be on holiday, on vacation. <laughs> and that's because um, actually the way that the uh, system works in the UK is that a big organization like that goes bust. Immediately a shadow airline is set up. Uh, this was called Operation Matterhorn, and they charter in aircraft. They had a, an Airbus A380 super jumbo. I mean, from this Malaysia is like the largest Airlines. rescue since Dunkirk. Yes, exactly, and uh, but but uh, carried out under more pleasant conditions. And so basically, you were on vacation. Um, they basically just said, um, "Okay, your flight might have been moved by a few hours. You might be flying into Birmingham rather than to London, but it doesn't really uh, make that much difference. We'll have a bus waiting for you. Um, so stay by the pool, order another drink." and um, just just turn up at the airport and we'll fly you home. Um, enormous expense, um, 130 million US dollars. That the cost. government paid. Uh, the government paid. Some of it will be recouped through various insurance schemes, but the rest the uh, taxpayer will pick up. And who picks up that void now? Which airlines step into that? Well, really interesting. We're going in, as you and I have talked before, into a really, really tough winter. And even though Thomas Cook had uh, uh, hundreds of flights scheduled every week, particularly to destinations where they were the specialists, such as uh, the UK to Cuba, um, nobody nobody wanted to pick those up. Um, they're all waiting for... Uh, Easter 2020, when they think, okay, well, we can we can move in on those routes. Um, uh, the, you've got EasyJet, you've got uh, uh, an airline called uh, Jet Two moving in on a lot of them. Um, Tui, you, you've got Tui, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is the the giant uh, package holiday company. Um, they're all moving in, but they're not doing it in any great hurry, which means actually in a winter which should be terrific for for cheap deals to um, uh, vacation destinations around the Mediterranean, it's not that good. It's actually much better across the Atlantic. It is. Although the hotels must be suffering. Oh, the hotels are absolutely disaster. Yes, if you take uh, destinations like Tunisia, absolutely dependent on Thomas Cook's business during the winter, they've, of course, had the terrible... Uh, outcome of the the uh, massacre about th four years ago um, uh, two massacres in in three months um, which led to a ban on on travel to the north african country they were just beginning to recover and suddenly the company that they depend on has uh, has failed and that is putting yet more pressure on them speaking of ban on travel the british foreign office and sharm el sheikh ah yes because every time i go to egypt the egyptian authorities there are so angry at the brits because every other country in the world has said, 
You can fly there, except the Brits. Well, that has now finally changed. I'm say, glad to say, Peter. And actually, from uh, yeah, from exactly um, one month ago, yesterday, one month tomorrow. Uh, so I'm afraid that's actually changed. I'm delighted to say that's actually changed now, Peter. And um, just in in four weeks or so time, the very first flight for four years from. Um, uh, the UK to Sharm El Sheikh will take off, uh, and um, the Egyptians are very glad to be that that's happening. And of course, uh, the British people who've got all this pent up demand for the premier resort in Egypt will be heading over there as well. All right, so speaking of destinations back on the radar, Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt being one in the Sinai. What else is on the radar for the rest of 2019? Well, if you just look straight across the Red Sea at uh, Saudi Arabia, a place that you and I have talked about before, uh, that is absolutely trying to get into the mainstream. Uh, they have got a new e-visa, which um, kind of most, most Western travelers will be able to apply for. And you can get it very quickly. Get it incredibly quickly. Much quicker, much easier, I must say, than the U.S. Esther permit um i got mine in about five minutes uh, sure it costs what 130 about, bucks yeah like something but, a little bit more than 100 dollars. yeah yeah um which is a bit but it's multiple entry um over the course of a year it's a great permit and so i think people will be gradually going back in i don't see any or going in because previously you've needed well, previously different. nobody got in yeah um so, so it's so it's they only have to, they only have one way to go up uh, well, they, they certainly do, and it, it shows the way that um, nations previously dependent on oil are trying to diversify. Well, you know what that is? That's the Dubai model. You know, that's why they started tourism, and that's exactly what's happening in Saudi Arabia. They're trying to diversify the portfolio. Obviously, it's under the umbrella, the sort of dark umbrella of the murder of, of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, um, something that they've not really come to grips with. Uh, but at the same time, every airline... Every cruise line, every hotel, they are knocking on the door because they see the numbers. Uh, in the Red Sea, they're doing—they're developing 22 islands, 22 islands in the Red Sea. Oh, sure, it's unbelievable. And and they are effectively zoning in the sense that they are going to have these areas in the Red Sea um, where they, the normal Saudi rules do not apply, which for a lot of people, particularly women, um, will be uh, some some comfort. And, and here's one rule that they relaxed. Unmarried couples will be allowed to share the same hotel room. Hey, welcome to 2020. Well, that's actually putting them ahead, would you believe, of places like Dubai, where it is still technically illegal um, for people of the opposite gender to share a hotel room. and unless they are married or, or brother and sister, and the um, of course uh, in Saudi Arabia, like so many other places, there is a ban on uh, homosexuality, um, which um, is most certainly ignored in in Dubai, and I dare say will be in Saudi as well. Sooner or later, you know, look, once the door is open, it's almost inevitable that they can't stop it. Oh, sure, yeah, and and tourism is a great force for good. You know, if you've got people coming in, you know, there, there are many cases in which kind of West, the West has been portrayed as this evil empire and actually people come in from, from the US, from Europe, uh, from, from elsewhere and actually they're just people and uh, everything I've heard makes it sound as though Saudi Arabia is a really welcoming place. I've got my visa. I am looking forward to going. But of course, the regime, and as you alluded to, it will take comfort from me going in there, boosting the tourism numbers. And uh, of course, some of the money that I spend will be going to that regime. Oh, that's also without argument. But 
if you happen to like to drink alcohol, mm. that's not going to happen right away in, in uh, Saudi. Uh, it certainly isn't. I mean, of course, there are huge expatriate communities, Americans, British people, other European uh, nationalities, not to mention the, the many, many hundreds of thousands of people from the Indian subcontinent. And I understand that there are compounds where they may not be totally alcohol-free at all times. But Are you um, like the Claude Rains character shocked to finding out that gambling is going on in <laughs> Rick's casino but collecting his winnings from the night before? Could that be the case here? Uh, well, I, I, I think gradually things will, will ease uh, because Saudi Arabia is now in a race against, of course, uh, Dubai, which is way ahead of everybody else, and Qatar, where um, very soon they're starting the, um, uh, this is a, a soccer championship, the World Club Cup. Uh, championship just before Christmas that that uh, kicks off in in Doha, the capital. Um, they're doing that as a kind of warm up for the World Cup in 2022. Um, but they are just desperate to be put on the travel map. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now our radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? Joining me now, the executive pastry chef. But the best thing of all, he's the winner of the Bake Off. Uh, T-Ball Marsh, how are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. How are now, you? you're from France, so, of course, the, the, your middle name is Butter. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I know. And then more Butter. <laughs> uh, tell me about the Bake Off that you won. So, um, the Bake Off filming was between January and March. It was over seven weeks. And every week, uh, one team was going home. And uh, we went through until the final. So it was and, and what did you win with? So I, win, I won this competition with Erica, who was my No, teammate. no, but what I say, what, what, did, what dish did you win it with? Oh, so at the final was the afternoon tea. We'll find out about Erica later. Go ahead. <laughs> was the afternoon tea and the wedding feast. That was the final challenge of this competition. Now, you've been a pastry chef a long time. It's like 12 years now. I know. And you always you were in Paris. What made you move to London? I got the opportunity a few years ago to join a company in London, and I love to travel, so I took this opportunity on board, and I came here. Okay. Other than butter, what makes the big difference in a pastry chef? The chef. <laughs> I know, but I'm saying, what ingredients are you using, or what have you figured out how to finesse a particular... So the quality of the product is the best part as well. If you want to do a good product, you have to use the... Um, good ingredient as well, with good quality. And after the knowledge you have to know regarding this, those ingredients to mix them properly. Now, if you're going to be in London, every hotel has a high tea. Every hotel has an afternoon tea, right? Yeah, right. Right. And you have the more you, you have the traditional one over at the Ritz, where if you walk in with a pair of jeans, wearing a jeans, you know, you'll be shown the door. Uh, but what makes your tea different, your afternoon tea? My tea is different because I put my French touch on it, and it's not that much French chef <laughs> in London. Okay, what is the French touch? Um, it's the way how I work, like, and what I learn in French is completely different from what we learn in English. Such as? <laughs> if um, I were to make a croissant today, yeah. I would mess it up. Maybe, but, yeah. <laughs> no, no, definitely, right? Um, so what, am I do what are you doing with your croissant that nobody else is doing? It's just like I learned that way, like the way how, I don't know how to explain what's the French touch, but it's just like... Um, I learned how to do this in French, and it's that kind of French product that they don't really have in here. Like, they have it in here, but it's not their specialty. Right, but I'm saying, are you using more butter? Are you using more chocolate? Are you using more what? So, so far, I'm using more chocolate because I just launched the new afternoon tea. And it's, uh, do you like chocolate? It's full chocolate afternoon tea. And we try to be different from the others. So we're talking chocolate scones? Yeah, chocolate scones, chocolate pastries, chocolate cocktails, two berries. Wow, I love that. 
And how much, okay, since I'm, I'm completely obsessed with butter here, how much butter <laughs> are you going through every day? It's like 10 kilo per day, roughly. <laughs> and sugar? At 15, 15 wow. kilo per day. Right. So basically, after eating with you, I have to take a nap. Yeah, definitely. We're talking serious <laughs> nap. Is there a dessert or a pastry that you haven't been able to make that you want to make? I don't know, actually. I always find something new every day um, when I'm looking on social media about the new chef or something I want to try. All right, so let's talk about this. Every chef has a signature dish. What's your signature pastry? I like the lemon tart. Explain what goes into it. So I got the um, shortbread uh, dough, uh, praline fiorentine to have the crunchy layer and the nut flavor, a lemon curd and an Italian meringue with lime zest on top. That's the best one for me. And how long does it take you to make that? Uh, about two hours to make some, yeah. Two hours? Yeah. Wow. Is that, is that your best dish here? Is that the one that moves the fastest? That's the one I love the most, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one that people order the most, though? Um, I think at the hotel is the um, burr cake. That is a um, special cake from the coffee shop, which is gluten-free. So most of the people love this one as well because it's gluten-free. Now, I ask every chef on the show the same question, so you'll be no exception. What is the one dish that you made that you thought, this is going to be the best dish ever, and nobody ordered it? And then what's the one dish that you created and you said, Who's going to ever order this? And everybody wanted it. <laughs> so for the first one, uh, I created last year a black croissant. So I made the croissant with a charcoal powder. You're, you're really back to chocolate, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you use chocolate butter. No, I used the um, charcoal powder. Right. Charcoal powder. Powder, yeah. Or chocolate powder. To make powder. the dough. Right. Yeah. So the dough was black. And I want to recreate the black forest uh, gateau, but in a croissant. So I filled the croissant with the shanty and the cherry. But this one was the, the best thing ever. So, but you're <laughs> yes, trying to tell me is it's no longer on the menu. <laughs> no, no, it's no, no longer okay. on the menu. And so what's the one thing that you've made that you figure, okay, I'll do it, but everybody loved it? I think I didn't expect when I created the um, previous menu from our afternoon tea, the Summer Rose Garden, that much, like a lot of people came for it. I didn't expect that. And it was just after the final of Bake Off, so. And... The, the, the last question I've got for you is, okay, you won the bake-off. What did you win? What do you get for that? So just the recognition and uh, everyone kind of know me more now. And, of course, all the butter you can put in. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.